So I'm sure everyone enjoyed their lunch and there was some interesting conversation taking place. So that's always a good thing. Uh, so before we get started, I'd just like to uh, remind you of next week's uh, presentation. Uh, one that I'm sure will generate a lot of interest. It's Israel at 70, past, present, and future. And this will be the topic of discussion, and our speakers include uh, Judy Shapiro, Executive Director of the Calgary Jewish Federation, uh, Jared Shore, Chair of the Community Relations Committee, uh, Calgary Jewish, Jewish Federation, and Jeffrey Smith, Board Member for the Center for Israel and Jewish Affairs. Uh, it will be an interesting topic, and uh, I'm sure you'll all enjoy it. Uh, also, just a quick reminder uh, that all of our sessions are on our website at uh, www.sacpaw.ca, and uh, you can also listen there and also to podcasts. So there's a microphone over there for uh, people who want to ask questions, or if you have written questions, just uh, submit them to me. And uh, we'd ask you to uh, keep your questions, uh, your comments brief, and uh, then your question. Also, we ask that you identify yourself before you begin. So with that, we'll invite our uh, speaker back up, and uh, we look forward to your questions. Thank you. Hello. My name is Larry Alford. Thank you very much for the presentation. It was fascinating. I learned a new term for uh, smuggled cheese, which is offshore cheese. And I wanted to ask you if you knew the term for stolen cheese. That's called nacho cheese. <laughs> it's, it's, it's somebody else's cheese, not yours. <laughs> nacho cheese, yeah. My, my question is, is, have there been changes to uh, marketing of agricultural uh, products in Europe and Australia, and has that had any effect? Can you comment on that to give us a little flavor of that topic? Yes. Um, off the top, I'll confess my ignorance. I'm not an expert in what's happened in other jurisdictions. There are people who are more knowledgeable than I am. But um, supply management had was in place in, in different countries in Europe and in, and in um, Australia, and these have been discontinued. One of the things that is going on, as I understand it, in Australia is that um, to offset some of the losses to primary producers as a result of the termination of the program, there's a fee that uh, consumers pay at the grocery store to make up the difference. And there's a time limit on how long that is in place. Uh, and this is important. Um, as, I, as I mentioned, there's, there's, there's trade-offs in every which direction. There's nothing for, we can't get anything for free. Um, and it is one way of, of, of uh, compensating for the losses. And I, I wrote an article that was in McLean's with a colleague of mine, and we pointed that out as a possibility of, uh, of overcoming this problem in Canada should the current system be terminated. So it has worked elsewhere, and it, to, to a certain extent. Does that answer your question? You're welcome. Hi, my name is Peter Beal, and I'd just like you to frame... Supply management implies 
a quota system. And I'd like you to frame that in, in terms of by 2050 there will be 10 billion people in the world and the world won't have enough food. Also, things like right now, the increase in refugees gets to the point where Dr. Borda says it takes 75 cents to minimally feed a person and the average charitable nation right now is only 50 cents. So, you know, is, is it fair to have quotas on food when so many people are dying? Well, that's a, thank you for the question. Um, as an economist, I'm, as I mentioned in my, my notes, it's not for us to say whether something's good or bad or fair or not, it just is. And the consequence of restricting supply to increase the price has the unavoidable consequence of, of uh, making it more expensive for individuals to purchase goods that are supply controlled. And whether that's good or not is, is up to your judgment. I'm sorry to give you a cheap answer to a good question, but that's where I'm going. Knud. Thanks very much for coming. You're Danny. welcome. Uh, Knud Peterson is my name. Danny, I wonder if you could speculate a little bit on uh, um, taking from the experience in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, it's already pretty big farms nowadays because the only ones that can can grow is the one that already have quotas. It's almost impossible for anybody to get started in that business. Uh, could you foresee if, if there was no supply of management, it would just get even bigger? It'd be very big corporate farms, and not that I'm saying anything wrong with that, but could you speculate a little bit on, in that regard, whether the farms are just going to keep getting bigger or are they already just getting bigger? It really depends on what consumers want. We were having an interesting conversation at the table here a moment ago about a person who uh, bought some uh, Amish cheese, or it was Amish butter, excuse me. You know, it was made in a particular way and it was in a particular shape. And uh, that's what this consumer wanted, right? If the consumer wants a homogeneous product produced at the lowest cost, there are scales of production in agriculture that exist that uh, for very, very large operators, they can put their average cost quite low. Um, but if the consumer wants some variety with respect to what it is that they're consuming, uh, that comes at a cost, right? I, I can't exploit the, that compared that those economies of scale. In fact, some consumers would prefer to spend a lot more money on something that's, what's the right word, artisanal? Something that's from a... In the old days, you'd call it a, from somebody a community gardener, right? But uh, a hobby farmer, for example. Um, my brother, uh, he has a hobby farm outside of Toronto, and I think he's got half a dozen chickens or a dozen chickens. The eggs that he produced, that those chickens produce, have to be the most costly eggs in the province of Ontario. Yeah, but <laughs> he, he's delighted, right? So it's, it's not just a consumption good, it's also I get some benefit, I enjoy producing it. Um, so the punchline, the takeaway is the, the, what is produced is, is ultimately aimed at, at consumers, right? It's consumption that drives production. Um, and that's how producers orient their business, always in view of satisfying the consumer. Yes? 
My name is Klaus Jericho. This is actually the same question which Knud asked, uh, just at the, at the other end. Uh, I'm interested in uh, reducing unemployment and providing sort of worthwhile activity. Is it, is it possible to go back to more uh, less intensive production of food in Canada. In Canada, is is it actually possible to go back and have more people employed in the agricultural industry? Uh, it probably is, but it's likely more costly to do that. Um, I would suspect. Well, let's pick on my brother. He's not here. Um, <laughs> There's a very small-scale producer. He's also got some bees. I think he's got three hives, and two of them didn't survive the winter. And although he didn't say it, I'm very curious to know if neonicotinoids were the cause of, his, of the death of his bee colonies, or was it his own carelessness and, or in, being innocently uninformed at a keep hive over the winter. Um, it's certainly possible that there... That there could be more individuals employed in agriculture, but it has to be profitable, right? Uh, in places where, where it's been forced on individuals, uh, it's been a disaster. You know, there's some examples in uh, African countries where, you know, people were moved by force from the cities to become farmers once again, and uh, it created tremendous misery. So... Um, I like your question very much. I have a 13-year-old son, and one of the things that you want a young person to learn is how to be productive, you know, do something worthwhile, get off the darn iPhone or iPad or whatever it is, go out and learn how to do something. And it's difficult for young people in Canada to get experience, right? You, you, it, it's not like when I was a kid and you could go down the road and get a job at the neighbors and, and clean box stalls and uh, drive equipment. You know, I, somebody called me 10 years ago and they said, Danny, I'm really stuck. I need somebody to drive a combine for me. I said, yeah, I can do that, no problem. But imagine this person's dilemma. He's asking an academic <laughs> from the university to drive a $350,000 piece of equipment. Are you sure I am the best alternative that you have? Right. Um, so I think it, it's, it's more difficult for young people to find opportunities uh, in agriculture. Um, the flip side is there's probably never been more op well-paid opportunities in agriculture. You know, but it's just not primary production. It's things that where agriculture and other social sciences, sciences or physical sciences intersect. It's agriculture and computing. It's agriculture and geography. It's agriculture and physics. It's agriculture and computing science. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there. Um, but that's not for 13-year-olds, unfortunately. Yeah. Thank you very much. I'm Conrad Van.
and dairy in Canada. Dairy, Canadian dairy's got the youngest generation of farmers doing it because of the stability that yeah. supply management has given us, and then we don't have the big factory farms. Question I have for you, the price that the um, producers in New Zealand are paying to become a member of a co-op to produce the milk, or the price that some of the consumers are paying through their taxes or through the store shelf like a, yeah. with um, recycling on dairy products, that's not sustainable. In Canada, we have a system that does not need the support or subsidy from the government. The only support we get is the border protection, and the consumers are still getting it as reasonable price for the product to pay the, at any other country. Um, so what's the, what would be a better solution to keep that stability, smaller farms, going forward? <laughs> that's the $64 million question. A very, a very good question. Um, I, I, yeah. No, I. But it. The, I guess the, there. As I, as I ended the, the presentation, there, there's no. And I, we mentioned this at the table. There's. In whatever direction this goes in the future, there, there are costs and there are trade-offs, right? Um, and uh, dairying is not an easy business. I worked as a herdsman for a couple of years, uh, and um, it takes a special kind of person to, you know, you're t you are tied to that enterprise 24-7, 365. You, there's no escape. Um, and many people, I suspect, have poor appreciation of that. Um, but and there are and there are trade-offs. So I, I don't. In, we were we were having a conversation at the table here a moment ago about you know well raw milk is an incredibly perishable product and supply management ensures the. The stable, consistent supply, and, and uh, in part because it is perishable. And uh, the observation was made well in Holland. Uh, there's an example of a, a commodity that's even more perishable than raw milk, and it's fresh cut flowers. And fresh cut flowers in Holland are sold at auction, right? Price falls, somebody slams the gavel down, and the fresh cut flowers are sold. I'm not suggesting that raw milk be sold in that way, <laughs> but we live in a time where, you know, access to information is is inexpensive, right? Um, I'm inclined to believe that there must be a way through forward contracting that a reliable producer can enter into a long-term contract with a processor at a freely negotiated price. Um, that's one alternative. There are many, many others. Um, but I think the pressure is on, right? There's, there is a lot of pressure on supply management, and, and, it, and it's causing a lot of consternation among people who are, or perhaps are politically interested or they've, they've got a research interest. But it's also very 
I can't imagine being in a position operating a business in supply management where this is constantly gnawing in the background. Right? So I don't have the answer to your big question, but it is the big question. Thank you. Yes. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I feel you gave us uh, a course in a half an hour. Oh, my goodness. <clears throat> yeah, I'd like to take the course. Um, <laughs> okay, my question. Uh, uh, I'm Bev Mundell-Atherstone, <laughs> member of the SOCBA board. Thank you so much for being here. So my question has to do with the 13,500 people who are involved with this supply management in Canada. Yes. And then you tossed out the quota number of 36 billion. So my question's in three parts. First, you mentioned that these quotas came in in the 70s. I wondered why, why, why what particularly um, got that going in the 70s. Secondly, um, when you're talking, well, when you're talking about 36 billion, is that actual money? Is it the value of the of these different? Um, is it the value of the quota? And if it's the value of the quota, then when I, as a farmer with my dairy herd, decide to retire, then does someone? buy that quota from me? Is that part of the $36 billion, or do they buy it from the government? So how does that work? So okay. first first in the 1970s, and then how does this whole thing work? Okay, Start, starting with your first question first. Um, actually, the origins of supply management can be traced to the Second World War, where uh, dairy farmers, among with Producers of all other commodities were subsidized to increase uh, to to increase uh, to encourage an increase in production. And when the war ended, uh, the subsidies ended, and this was not to the satisfaction of, of many primary producers. And a very long story short was that there were stabilization programs that were put in place in the in the 1950s to counteract the what were quite significant swings in prices that farmers received. And at the time, farmer, dairy farmers received about 90% of the, of the transfers through the Agricultural Stabilization Act. So there's something special about dairy, and I don't mean to pick on dairy, but that was the, the big concern. Um, provincial boards were put in place in the early 1960s uh, to try to limit provincial supplies, but because it was possible for sellers in one region to... Uh, satisfy buyers in another province. There was a lot of interprovincial trade, and it was difficult to control provincial supplies. A national program was put in place, and dairy was the first one in 1971. And in, in providing in, uh, the necessary information to control supplies, in the late, late 1960s, uh, dairy farmers were encouraged to participate in what was called a subsidy eligible quota. So if they revealed information about how much they were producing, they were eligible to re receive a direct transfer from the, from the federal government. And uh, that information actually went to help to um, put, quantify what was being produced and by whom. And it enabled uh, authorities to more effectively control national supplies of raw milk and then later chicken, eggs, turkeys, and so on. Uh, your question with respect to quota. Uh, 
it certainly is the hope that when a farmer retires that he is able to sell quota at the prevailing price. I noticed uh, last month, uh, at least for dairy in this province, it's, it's almost $40,000 a kilo, which using a rough rule of thumb that one kilo of quota is what you require for one cow. A herd of 100 probably, a milking herd of 100 would require about $4 million a quota, right? That's a lot of money. And at least it is for me. So if um, I was retiring, I would certainly hope that I could sell that at a price, at that price to, uh, uh, and it's, it's my retirement nest egg. Um, and the problem is, to the extent that the system is compromised with more imports, um, the value of that quota will go down, right? And that's a problem for the people who are relying on this, and we cannot forget them, right? Does that answer your, answer your question? In terms of the 13,500, there's roughly, somebody might know more than I would, but there's roughly about 10,000 dairy producers left in the country and about 3,500 of chicken, poultry, and eggs. Okay, next. Good day. <coughs> Hello. Peter Walner. I'm uh, actually director on the Egg Board of Alberta. What was your name, so, sir? So, Peter Walner. Okay. Peter. Yeah. So, what I one the one is just a little statement, and then a, then I have something, a kind of a question sure. after that. We're talking about the hindrance of supply management, and this is a document that you can get on online from Egg Farmers of Alberta or Egg Farmers of Canada. It's online; anybody can read that. It says the system of supply management should not be used as a bargaining chip in trade negotiations. It's a domestic policy that minimizes risk and ensures Canadian consumers have a viable and sustainable food production system. Like, uh, all the, the system in Canada or the system in Alberta, it's a national thing. You're in, you're in there, you have your Star Clean, Stay Clean programs, you have your animal care program, you get audited, you have to come up with uh, government programs, and you have to be on top of that. If you're not up on top of that, up in 90, high 90%, you're not going to stay in there as a producer. It's just not going to work like that. And then the other thing that I was going to say is um, supply management has nothing to do with price consumers pay at the store. There's a U.S.-Canada, U.S. Ernerberry, Canada price gap across all sections. There are a number of factors that lead to higher prices in Canada. This includes higher costs of transportation, fuel, wages, tax rates, and most importantly, a very different population distribution that prevents Canadian companies from taking advantage of of the economies of the scale. So in, uh, you have your, your COP for what you, you make on eggs. Yes, it costs you a fair amount to get in there. 
Yes, we have programs for new entrants to get in there. But in the long run, it is uh, supply management. It's what keeps it going. In Canada, you're always supplying a little, little under demand. We're always importing a few eggs. Mm -hmm. We're importing a few eggs in all provinces. But that's a good thing You can't if you're not oversupplying. If you're going to be oversupplying, well, what are you going to do with your access? Is that your question then? It, it's. Uh, do you have anything else you wanted to add to that? Like, no. But, but right off the top, Peter, thank you for coming, and thank you for your your comments there. Um, and what you've read is is all true, right? There, the supply management does offer a level of stability it, in terms of. Prices and incomes to primary producers. There are programs that facilitate the the, the young people to to enter into it. Um, these things are all true. the The point of my presentation was to point out that while these things are true, they come about at a cost. There's a trade-off involved, and we need to think about that. We need to think about the people who are involved. Um, one of the things that is different with egg producers from raw milk producers, for example, is that even a, a small hobbyist can choose to have a flock and they can sell their eggs privately, ungraded, to whomever wants to buy them. Right? And that... Mm, not to whoever they want to. They can use it for their own, like for their own use or for their family. Like, say, they got a larger family or something like that. Yes, they can do that, but they they, they can't go out and like uh, make a bunch of pastries or whatever and no, sell them like that. No, they can't do that. No, but there is there is opportunity to buy farm fresh for the, eggs for from. for their own use. Yes, it's good. Okay, we'll go on okay. to the okay. thank you. Thank Next you. question, please. Thank you for your presentation. You're welcome. Uh, my daughter has traveled extensively, does travel extensively. She's in Africa and Australia, Asia, South America. And I always ask her what the price of milk products is. But apart from that, for the ones that are here and concerned about the poor people or other people, there's many countries where milk is not in the diet so it don't make much difference how we deal with our milk and how we pay for it. But most places, it's about the same as in Canada. In New Zealand, it was a little bit higher in price, but in Europe, it's sometimes lower, especially cheese. Thank you. Thank you. No question. No question. That's an easy one. Hey, Mary. Thank you for being here. I'm Mary Shillington, and I'm a retired clinical social worker, so I appreciate your concern about people, and particularly the poor people, who are, I agree, are, are often having to make choices in their diets because of costs. So my question is, what would be different if they went, if we didn't have this system, and they went to a store, like in, I think you said New Zealand or Australia, one of those places, and they had to pay something extra there at the store 
in order to, to buy free market kind of goods. Well, those programs are in place for a limited period of time. But in the, in the interim, if that happened here in Canada, would the price for poor people be even higher than what it is presently? It could be. It would depend on what the fee is and how long it's in place for. Yeah. So there's, again, there's, my crystal ball is as cloudy as yours. Yes, right? so yes. There, Mine's pretty cloudy. There's, <laughs> there, there are unavoidable, unavoidable trade-offs. Yeah. Um, the, the, the interest, I think the, perhaps the more interesting question would be, what would the pattern of production of dairy, poultry, and eggs look like in mm -hmm. this country if there was not supply management? Mm -hmm. um, and what would the prices be for, for consumers? And these are questions that neither you nor mm -hmm. I can, can answer, other than to say that it will be different. Yeah, and it could be more expensive or not. It, it could be, and it might not be. Yeah. The whole idea of getting unpasteurized milk from a, from a machine just kind of stirs my stomach. Okay. I, I understand there's 1,300 of them in Italy. Ooh. Uh, we got time for one more question. Thank you, uh, Dan, for your presentation. You're welcome, uh, Martin. I have a few comments, name? if you don't mind. Not at uh, all. And I try to rectify a few things, if you let me. Uh, the first thing about uh, the raw milk, right? Uh, everybody can have 50 liters of milk, if they like to. They can produce it and can use it. They cannot only sell, they cannot sell it. That's they the point, sell it. right? If you look in the poultry industry, uh, you can have 2,000 uh, birds if you like to, because they are free, right? For quota, mm -hmm. that one. The other one, what I like to say is, uh, you said it's really difficult to get in an industry. Uh, in the broiler industry, Last year, we have 10 new entrants. The year before, we have nine. And the year before that, we have seven or eight. Is, I is, mean, the is system this, is open. Is, is this, uh, are, for which commodity, Martin? Is this in dairy, is it in poultry? No, no, that is in the broilers. In the broilers, okay. Yeah, yeah. And in the dairy industry, over the last four years, we have 13 new entrants. Just to let you know what is mm. kind of going on. Thank you. Okay, thank you. And thank you for your presentation. Martin van Diemen, dairy producer and chicken producer. Yeah. Okay, that's it for this, and we want to thank you again for your presentation. Uh, so let's give him a round of applause.